0: Before we start our episode today, this is just
1: a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We
2: would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today.
0: Hello
1: and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach here, flying solo. Alex is trusting me again, not really sure why, despite previous performances, but nonetheless... Uh, Here I am and I'm with a guy who frankly doesn't need an introduction. All I will say is that he is probably the nicest person I've met who owns a ponytail. Josh Proven is the master of adventures in Historyland and just has a, I don't know how to call it, it's like a font of all knowledge when it comes to periods that we generally don't know a huge amount which is why he keeps coming back personally i've said to alex i reckon he just wants his own history hat calendar and he's just going to take all of those cartoons and, and then issue it as a calendar um but the reason that you're here today is not to just talk about something that we wouldn't normally cover but you have a book out your second book in fact
2: i do yes for the same uh, obscure reasons that alex allows you to fly solo which i completely understand, but. You know, publishers have allowed me shelf space and catalogue space, have put my scribbling into, into book form for you all to read. And it's about the Second Maratha War, and it's called Bullocks, Grain, and Good Madeira.
1: Let us just emphasize that first word. That was bullocks, folks, bullocks, grain, and good Madeira, and not something else no dirty jokes please this is this is a clean podcast we don't do dirty jokes on history hack Of oh,
2: course okay. we just we just allude to them sometimes
1: absolutely <laughs> right so let's dive straight in because second maratha war a lot of people are going to be listening to this and going hey what so set the scene for us where are we geographically and perhaps more importantly where are we in terms of the history of the british empire
2: okay so uh, we're in india uh, specifically the Maratha domain is um, that comprising you know geography is difficult in the spoken matter but uh, you have the, the wide central belt uh, of India uh, which which is called the Deccan and that is considered in some circles sort of a Maratha heartland um, it it's it's, it it begins it begins in the begins in the west of india uh, coming out of a mountain range called the ghats and narrows off towards the east and then to the north as well you have what what was called hindustan uh, and that was also controlled by the marathas up to the, the sort of the line of the himalayas and the punjab and in terms of the British Empire, we've reached a point where the empire un, under the East India Company, you call it Company Raj, if you will, um, has decided under the leadership of uh, the new Governor General Richard Wellesley to be much more muscular and uh, expansionist in its in its effort to gain a sort of, I guess you would call it a a, a territorial and commercial monopoly over India. There's also the idea from Wellesley himself, who has a slightly individual, unique, you might call it philanthropic idea, that he can bring order and justice and peace to India if he can just remove the com- competition of the country powers, as they call them, the independent states of India.
1: He is basically a white, rich snob, isn't he? With the, with the best of my I mean, he, we should say, if people are wondering, Wellesley, why does that name ring about? He's Arthur Wellesley, later Wellington's brother.
2: He is. So yes. he...
1: Is he the Earl of Mornington by this point, or does that come later?
2: I'm trying. I was just there trying to think of of what he would be at this particular point. I believe he was. Yes, he would have been the Earl of Mornington, but at this point, I think he had actually been made Marcus of Wellesley, uh, and I don't think he liked it. He referred to it as a what double double guilt potato because it's an Irish title. He didn't like it. Just to, just to sort of like, just sort of frame that uh, idea of stavishness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a very... an
1: Irishman mm-hmm. turning around and going, I don't like the fact that I'm Irish. Sorry to our Irish listeners, but yeah. um, this is all tied up in the prejudices of the time. A yeah. Protestant um, aristocrat who feels that a, an Irish title is worth less than a title in, in mainland, inverted commas, Britain.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And he, yeah, he's a very finicky guy. He's a very, he's a very kind of diva-ish figure. Um, he loves pomp and ceremony. He, when he's in India, he he acts essentially as if he is a Maharaja uh, while uh, at the same time, sort of adding to his shopping list, all of the Maharajas that uh he can possibly get into uh, the company's uh, influence. And at this point, he has managed to tick off that list, Hyderabad, Mysore, and he has for a long time been wanting to try and get the Marathas on the list, but they're up to this point being uh, quite uh, resistant to the idea, unsurprisingly.
1: So how do we get to the second Maratha war? Do you want to kind of explain to us what? the first Maratha war was about and the extent to which that does or doesn't feed into the second?
2: Well, I, in my opinion, the first Maratha war has nothing to do with the second Maratha war except that it's spookily similar in the way it happens. Um, the, the first one was caused by the deposition deposition, if that's the right use of the word, of the Peshwa, which is the ruler of the Maratha Confederacy, or well, like the accepted ruler of the Confederacy. They all tended to have a little bit of independence, but um, he's the guy that kind of dealt with their foreign policy and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, and he was, the Peshwa is also the, the person who is kind of blessed by the old Sultan, the old um Uh, who used to be the head of the Marathas, and therefore he's the guy who technically has the political power. Anyway, this guy was a monstrous figure, and he was ousted uh, by a coup. I believe it's referred to as the Brahmin coup. And uh, for a while, a council of regency was set up uh, where the Peshwa was... Uh, Gosh who was too young. Uh, but that's getting into Maratha politics. So I'm gonna going to stop that. I'm gonna stop that sort of side road there. But anyway, he gets he gets ousted and he runs to the British and he says, please put me back on my throne, which they call the Masnood in Poon, which is, is, is the, the Petra's capital. And the British of course said, well why not? Uh, or principally the I believe it's the Bombay um presidency said why not because at that time things weren't quite so centralized
1: is this the kind of the british yeah we'll help you out and then we'll extract a heavy toll for that later or is this a genuine no we'll be nice people because you know we're the british (laughs) empire and we're absolutely faultless and never did anything wrong so you can absolutely trust us is it that kind of we'll help you out josh
2: uh, I, I, I mean, I'm much too cynical when it comes to history to believe anybody did it. It did something for nothing. So I'm pretty sure that the Bombay presidency was just was going to definitely leverage some political, um, uh, some political uh, favors from this expedition. But it didn't go well, actually. Actually. Actually, actually, that's a strange way to put it. It didn't go actually so well. Uh, The First Maratha War was a big embarrassment. Um, In fact, a detachment of the uh, British Presidency Forces was surrounded and forced to surrender, if I remember correctly, and sent packing. And uh, only the capture of a couple of key fortresses by a Bengal detachment allowed the British to get out of the war with any kind of... um, sort of dignity because nobody re- like nobody wanted it, it was like it was the spur of the moment of the Beng- uh, Bombay presidency saying um, let's, let's go to war here and it was at the worst possible time as well because we're looking I believe it's the 1770s and this at this point they're at war with Mysore and Hyder Ali is in charge in Mysore, it's not Tipu, and you have a lot of dangerous guys hanging around in India at the time and it, and Haider actually almost manages to get the Marathas on his side and for a very very brief moment it looks as if a massive coalition of the most powerful uh states in India are actually going to drive the British out but it, they fall into factionalism they don't actually go through with it and it all peters out and Haider is defeated. And so that's the first Maratha War. Just for your information, and it's it's very I must I must stress this is a very um insufficient description of it because I did most of my research on the second, and unfortunately it really doesn't have a massive bearing on the second Maratha War, except that a civil war breaks out amongst the Marathas. In 1802. This is between the Peshwa and his ally, uh, Sindhya or Shind, however you want to say it, and a guy called Yashwantraa Holkar. And Holkar wins a very important battle outside of Pune, and the Peshwa. Bajirao Rao II flees to the British. Bajirao is the son of the guy who ran away to the British and caused the first pirata war. I would like to point out. And he does exactly what his dad did. He doesn't go to his ally because he doesn't trust his ally. He goes to the British and he says, help me out, put me back on, put, set, get me back to Poon, and I will sign a subsidiary treaty with you.
1: I mean, this this thing of it running in the family. It, there's there's almost this sense that this isn't going to end particularly well, in terms of Indian independence.
2: No, not not massively well. To put it to put it mildly, um, the the idea of Indian independence at this time is, of course, a debate in itself and what that would have looked like. Um, and there were certainly powers in India who were quite happy or at least tolerably happy to basically just get on board with the British system and say, well, they're the new guys on the block. We've dealt with the Mughals for 300 years or whatever it was, so we can deal with these people. And then there are others who are saying, we don't need another foreign interloper. We can just get on the way we are if we just stop them. Why don't we stop them? Um, And this is very much the view of traditional Maratha foreign policy, uh, up until this point they have been basically saying just stay away from the British, stay at peace with them, keep them at arm's length, don't don't have much to do with them if you can possibly help it. And of course that's completely all upset by the fact that there's a civil war now, everything's in chaos, is with the British, he signs a treaty with, with, General, with, um, with Governor General Wellesley and uh, allows him to put into motion um, uh, put into motion, basically putting him back on the throne and Poon. Um, it allows him the cover to do this. It allows him to look like I'm just defending my allies' interests here. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do this. Everything will be lovely, tied up with a little bow. And uh, my my genius scheme for uh, for uh, expanding the company's power will have succeeded.
1: So in terms of the armies that are then sent in, it's not exactly accidental, I would have thought, that the command of said army is given to a certain Arthur Wellesley, who just happens to be the brother of the Governor General Richard Wellesley. Talk us through, I'm reluctant to dive too much into Wellington's time in India because we want to talk about the Maratha War, but I mean, I I am conscious of the fact that there's a precursor to this, if you like, which is that Wellesley was given the um, responsibility for governing Mysore, wasn't he? When Mysore fell in 1799, and that actually put uh, David Baird's nose out of joint because Baird was more senior and felt that he had the right to it, but actually Wellesley was potentially the more diplomatically aware choice and so was chosen for that reason. So talk us through that kind of cronyism that's going on in India at this time and the way in which that influences the selection of of Wellesley to command and then also talk us through Wellesley's army and then his, his counterpart, if you like, the, the Maratha army. Okay,
2: uh, to the extent that the entire British military system at this point is essentially a, a crony system, it's not too unusual for family members to get, give other family members a, a leg up. Um, it's in fact quite accepted and it's the done thing, to be honest. You'd be a real rotter if you didn't try and at least help some of your relations, given it was perfectly acceptable to do so. Um, Arthur Wellesley at this point is just the, most, it's just the luckiest guy alive. When he came over to India, he didn't know his brother was going to become... Governor General. He knew it was pretty high up in, in the administration back in England, but that was how he got his commission and became a, a relatively quite young colonel of a regiment. But he gets to India and then he finds out, oh, Richard's coming over, he's going to run the entire show. And you get this kind of Wellesley brother Wellesley Bros Inc. going on for a while where they he, I think it's his brother, Henry. Is also there, and they all they, they work together to forward um, Richard's Richard's administration and his plans, things like that. And Arthur is important in that he is a man that Richard can trust. He um, is a and, proved, and he proves himself very capable in my soul. Uh, he becomes governor of Seringapatam and puts down a small but somewhat worrying rebellion by a guy called Dunthia Wah. And that is where he gets into the Maratha sphere. sphere. A lot of southern Maratha Jagirdars or landowners have heard of General Wellesley because of this campaign. Where he had to chase around this bandit, basically, um, in a very un-Wellington campaign where he leads cavalry charges and runs around doing a lot of napoleon sort of type of daring do. And Doesn't
1: sound like the the individual that Marx and I talk about at all.
2: Yeah, he, this, when he's when he's governor of Seringapatam he's, he's he's very kind of statesman like. With a military slant to it. It's, it's fascinating to, to look at that period in his life. But because he's governor there on Mysore, he's expecting a Maratha war at some point. And he actually writes a memorandum about what should be done to prepare for it. And so when Bajirah II uh, signs the Treaty of Bessay, which essentially kicks off the Maratha war, he suggests to General Stewart, who is in charge of the Bombay Division, um, commander-in-chief of the Bombay army, that his detachment should be sent out immediately ahead of the main army to take Poon and basically restore the Peshwa um, or make way to restoring the Peshwa. And they should be moved very fast and just do the job. And the main army can come up behind if necessary and Stuart likes the idea. Stock supplies have already been stockpiled on the frontier. And uh, he, da- he basically says, Well, it was your idea, you can do it. And then he writes to Richard Wellesley, and Wellesley unsurpri- Richard unsurprisingly says, Yes, of course, Arthur can do it. But by the time he gets confirmation, the confirmation arrives in Bombay, actually, well, Arthur Wellesley is already inside of the capital the Maratha capital
1: and in terms of the armies what are we dealing with here because you've got a a, a mixture of forces in I, I mean I, I'm tempted to start coming in with with comments but I want people to get a sense of your knowledge so I'm gonna just shut the hell up for once
2: <laughs> well I mean I don't mind if you want to if you if you want to jump in any way you like you know you know I don't mind these things uh, but uh, with the armies, so the East India Company um, is at this point reached a, a very high level of proficiency with its army. Um, it is made up primarily of what they called native regiments. So these are regiments on the battalion system, the British essentially the British battalion system uh, of native Indians of varying castes and religions and. Since 1796, a, they have been commanded by it, by somewhere over eleven European officers, and the in-native officers who bridge the gap between the foreign commanders and the sepoys who make up the rank and file are very important to the running of every battalion and every squadron of cavalry. Um, It's very large. It's larger than the British army, to be certain, certainly in peacetime. And uh, you're dealing with, at one point, certainly over 100,000 men across three presidencies.
1: I mean, for folks who don't kind of, perhaps aren't familiar with the period, what we're talking about here is like Amazon having an army. We're talking about a trading company here, not a, a nation, but a trading company with its base back in the UK, to what extent, can you call it the UK at that point? But people know what I mean, based back in Britain. And it has a force which nominally is there to defend the company's assets, but as you say, is used in these campaigns to actually aggressively expand. And then they work alongside the British army, which is effectively where Wellesley comes in because he has a commission. The other thing to say about the East India Company army different system of promotion so the cronyism doesn't exist in the same way because you can't buy your way up the ranks in the east India company army it's promotion based on competency but as you say there is a, a limitation where you've got um officers who are natives they funnily enough in a you know late 18th early 19th century highly prejudiced and racist society don't find themselves being promoted to the the highest jobs um, in, in the army.
2: A good example of that is a gentleman by the name of James Skinner who was a mixed race uh, man uh, the son of a Scottish East India Company officer and a Rajput hostage uh, political hostage I should say I have no particular it, it, it could be dodgy or it could just be the tailwind. I'm not quite sure, I can't get into that because I don't know but these were his parents. And after the reforms of 1796, he, wouldn't, he was not allowed to hold a commission. Uh, uh, yeah, he wasn't allowed to hold uh, a commission in, East, in the East India Company service because of his native blood. And so he up and went to the Marathas instead.
1: Which isn't actually that surprising. And that takes us quite neatly onto the Marathas because there is this whole kind of mercenary process that's quite well established um, amongst the native Indian sub nations if you will and presidencies and so on
2: yeah absolutely, and in fact it 's interesting if you if you want to look at this period of, of history in India as the East India Company as just one of the competitors vying for the attention of uh, soldiers you know, in the in the military economy of South Asia, they were winning the the war to get the best manpower. Yeah, they had a funny, had a funny attitude towards officers and people of uh, who have hmm, large scale responsibilities. We'll call it um, because although they did, uh, they were aware that you needed the native officers and especially people like the senior native officer in a battalion or a squadron being the Subadar or Risaldar Major who was pretty much the second most important officer in a regiment. He was kind of classed as a senior NCO in a way. And if you wanted to get ahead, if you were someone of mixed birth or someone who had was of a good family living in the presidencies as an Indian, you would probably be better off going to one of them the other states like Hyderabad or Mysore or the Marathas. And the reason for this is that since the 1760s, the Marathas had been building up a large, what was known as regular core of troops, especially in the in the army of the state of Gwania which was run by the Sindhirs and the this was a very very by this point very famous a very re- well respected body of troops it was officered by a mixture of uh, Europeans and mixed race and Indian officers and it was around, at this point, 20 or over 1,000 men, with its own artillery, its own supporting cavalry, uh, uniformed like the British uh, sepoys, where some British officers said they were better equipped than their own sepoys, and they had allowed the Marathas to maintain their, their grip on power, this, this particular this regular call which like like we said a minute ago was a place for certain you could you could get on in the world no matter who you were um you had people like ex-sailors from the french navy ending up as the commander-in-chief and getting millions of rupees in revenue a year you're dealing with mercenaries like ben Dubois, who was the guy who originally formed this core with uh, Mahadaji Sindh- uh, Sindhya and then you have people like um, Colonel Gardner uh, who is a very uh, was a European guy who came out and got so comfortable within this within the the regular core of Indore run by the Holkars that he married a, a Mughal princess and was quite prepared to defend her and uh, his reputation as her husband with his life. You, as well, you have people like James Skinner who wrote a, a really amazing or had written, had someone write for him a really amazing biography and he, both Gardner and Skinner, later raised irregular regiments for the the East India company but this is very much the the central core of the maratha army that the british are going to be coming up against and they don't know a lot about it they don't they, i mean they know it exists but they don't know it, they don't know how tough it is they don't and and that is that is a that's an underestimation that has persisted to this day. And there's a big reason why I wanted to write the book to show actually what, it, what, what happened when the British met this force, even at its, in its declining state. And apart from that, you have obviously the traditional modes of Indian Maratha warfare, which is masses of cavalry as well, and a lot of excellent artillery.
1: So there are two distinct theatres to this conflict. How do they progress, and to what extent do they kind of have a bearing on one another?
2: Okay. So, as far as Governor General Wellesley is concerned, um, the most important of the theatres is the one in the north, which is uh, under the direction of the Commander-in-Chief in India, uh, Lieutenant General Gerard Lake, who is an officer of the old school. He believes in personality. He believes in, you know, you know, being with the men, amongst the men, but not of the men. And he he likes to, and he and he's very successful in this. Like all the popular generals, like Abercrombie and Moore, he cultivates, of course, sort of a, cult of personality if you will and the soldiers love him and especially the cavalry because he's an excellent horse rider and he's in his 50s and he's, he's your atypical kind of 18th century British officer and he he starts a little later than than Wellesley but it's his job to conquer Hindustan is to drive into Hindustan and take Delhi, and if possible, to capture the emperor, the Mughal emperor in Delhi, uh, which is essentially the the main goal that Governor-General Wellesley has for this war, because if you capture Delhi, you essentially become the protector of the emperor, and that's gonna get you a lot of political sway going forwards. The other theatre is the spin-off from that detachment we were talking about earlier, where Arthur Wellesley suggests going in, capturing Poon, replacing Bajirao on the throne and then getting out and just acting like he's a subsidiary um, alliance ally and if he needs help, they can come back. Because actually, General Wellesley feels that the British are getting too overextended in India and he doesn't really think that a big war is a good idea. However, he's a soldier and he throws himself into his work you know, with dedication. And once war is declared, after they have restored Bajirawa and the rest of the Marathas reject the Treaty of Bersain, uh, he is tasked with defeating uh, Sindia's army in the Deccan, which we mentioned earlier. Wellesley starts first, and he drives into into the deck, and he takes Ahmed Nage and then having resupplied himself, he chases the Marathas around with his second-in-command, Colonel Stevenson, and they have a very very tough times, both supplying the army and at the same time trying to protect the Nizam of Hyderabad. Territory and at the same time trying to defeat the Marathas who keep their distance at first. This winds up in a very bruising battle at a place called Asai, which many people will be familiar with, where Wellesley attacks an army much larger than his own, despite not having the support of Colonel Stevenson, loses a third of his men, but routs the enemy and. Breaks Maratha power in the Deccan. While he's doing this, Lake is has taken the fortress of Adagar and is pushing into Hindustan. Now resistance in the north is not as fierce, it could be said, at this point as in the south. The reason for this is possibly because leadership in the north is completely destabilized. They are Sindia's soldiers, they are Sindia's generals, but they're mostly Europeans. They're mostly French as well, which is something that Richard Ralsey really hates. And in fact, actually, they call a section of Hindustan between Aligarh and Delhi the, the French territory because it's run by a guy named Perron, who uh, was that Navy sailor, by the way, I was talking about earlier. And basically, just before the war started, Governor-General Wellesley uh, made this proclamation saying that all European officers in arms with the Marathas would have to consider themselves traitors if they fought the company. And if they surrendered and came over to the company's side, then they could be given jobs and they would be given rewards. It was essentially a massive bribe because it placed the Europeans in all of the Maratha principalities in the position of being traitors one way or another. And most of them hedged their bets and said, well, the company is probably going to win, so I'm just going to get out. So at a stroke, the finest... The most effective part of the Maratha army is deprived of its officers, and in, in in the north this is very dramatic in terms of allowing Lake to capture Delhi, and in the south it's notable that the European officers at her, the presence of European officers at Assai might have been very critical. From here you can see that the Maratha army is in, in a great deal of trouble and is it can't really. Uh, Offer the effective opposition that it that it needs to to present to the British in order to actually actively defend territory and indeed drive them back. Well, Arthur Wellesley is very effective in in stopping the Marathas from taking the war into Hyderabad or the Company's possessions and keeping the war in Maratha possessions, and he successfully then pursues. Uh, Sindhya's ally uh, uh, Raghurji Bonsley and defeats him in short order at, at um, Argam and then takes the formidable fortress of uh, Gawilgur. Meanwhile in Hindustan Lake pursues the rest of the, the regular forces and has his own version of the Battle of Assaye at Laswari, where his son is almost killed. He takes massive casualties. He he sends his troops up against a massed battery of artillery. Somehow he manages to overcome it with basically just dogged perseverance and the fact that the Marathas seem to be deprived, critically deprived of, it, of active officers willing to to prosecute battles in an energetic fashion, essentially. Their main tactic at this point is to try and get a British army into a killing zone in front of their artillery and just hammer them, hoping to just wipe them off the field. And it it almost works, it's just not, not effective enough against the company's troops who are very dogged and very professional. And British officers say in these battles that one the Marathas fought tenaciously. Two, if the Marathas had been commanded by their old officers, the, the British probably would have lost. Three, their artillery is ridiculously powerful, and they're terrifying. And four, the...
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The is.
2: The Can be defeated, but you do have to be very careful about how you fight them. So, lessons were learned throughout these these battles and campaigns, which allowed the British to adapt better than the Marathas adapted to the British. Blake continues his campaign, he captures a few more cities and basically calls it a day. This is a mistake. This is seen as a mistake for the following reason, that the last remaining Maratha chief, as they called them, Maharaja, properly speaking, is Yashvantra Holkar, and he's still at large with a very rapacious army. Yeah, I was going to say,
1: the defeat of Sindhya's troops isn't the end of the story, is it? You've then got a whole other phase that goes on after what should have been the end of the war.
2: Yeah. Because in a way, this, this early part of the war in the Deccan and Hindustan was all against Sindhya really. And Holkar remember defeated Bajirao and Sindhya's army outside of Poon in 1802. The Marathas were still divided. Holkar didn't want, didn't trust the other Marathas. And he stayed at arm's length for the entire, arm's length for the entire time, seeing what would happen. And seeing that the his, 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 his other confederates had been defeated, he continued to stay at arm's length. And the British sort of followed him for a while. They really weren't sure what his game was. Some people thought he was actually just going to play, be really quiet and sort of accept the treaty and just roll over. But that wasn't this guy's style. He was a force of nature. This is the guy, by the way, there are any movie producers listening that you make the movie about, okay? He deserves an episode on his own, to be honest. But he does not give in. When Lake leaves, he leaves a detachment to sort of monitor what Holcar is doing. And Holkar just flattens it. He, he hits it with everything he's got. He chases it back all the way to Agra. And it is an utter... A disaster that most people at the time said was unparalleled in, in, in India for the British to have experienced. Um, excellent battalions of sepoys with their British officers, with their artillery, were, were broken and lost, mass desertions occurred. It actually looked as if Holkar was gonna take Delhi at one point, but luckily for Lord Lake, uh he had uh David Occilawney in Delhi and he didn't give up the fort and allowed Lake to regather his army and come and chase Holkar off and eventually defeat him but it just caused such a ma- such a mess for what was supposed to be a very glorious and successful war they got bogged down in this secondary war coming off it because the success of Holkar encouraged people like allies in, in the region of Rajasthan to support him, like the Raja of Bharatpur, which prompted Lake to go and try and punish this Raja, and it didn't go to plan at all.
1: It almost feels like they sort of fall into this in slow motion, and just know that Mark's going to listen to this, and he'll be booing at your suggestion that you make uh, the film about Holkar and not about our boy Wellington. Um, I want to tap into something else um, that's key in this book, because you call it, um, the or your, your focus is the Maratha and Jat campaigns. We haven't talked about the Jats, so, I mean, who are they and how do they get involved in all of this? Yes, well,
2: somewhat similar to the Marathas, they emerge out of the decline of the Mughal Empire in the 17th century, existing before that in some st- some manner or another, but they come into a semi-independent being during this time. They are ancient sort of defenders of India, going back into dim Hindu antiquity. They are a Hindu people and their capital is at Bharatpur in Rajasthan. They really at this point, we're one of the many states that, uh, well, yeah, one of the many states in this area who said who were under the sort of the the remit of Maratha power, and were left alone as long as they paid a certain amount of tribute money to the Marathas. And at this time, Holkar had been like looking around for allies when he was chasing this uh, British detachment um, yeah, back, to, back to Agra, which is, by the way, called Monson's Retreat, after the commander of the detachment, Colonel Monson. And the Rajah of Bharatpur, the giant Rajah of Bharatpur, I should say, Rajat Singh, he, he just timed it wrong. Unfortunately, he he got on board with Holkar uh, just as actually things were going badly for him, and this after he had already made a treaty with Lord Lake, you know, giving a giving sort of his his allegiance to the British. So the Jat Kingdom that is that is uh, in existence at Bharatpur is a is a is a kind of a. It it shouldn't be difficult to defeat it, given the British managed to have so far in India for the last, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 years, never failed to take a city on the first go. All they need to do is take a couple of cities and get a a kind of uh, exact cash penalty on them, and that should be the job done. But like i say things go remarkably badly
1: yeah but this is a bit of history that you know us brits don't like to acknowledge because then it um, involves admitting a failure and you know what the british are like they do like to write all of the failures out of their history so surely we can't talk about this josh
2: <laughs> oh can't we now <laughs> Uh, this is this. I think we really should at least give it a moment of uh, uh, I think we should. I think we should try and buck the trend, Zach. What do you
1: think? Oh, I, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. Um, <laughs> I just know that certain people are going to be listening to this going. No, can't possibly have any setbacks for the British. The British were the dominant force during this period. They single handedly wiped out Napoleon's armies. They were the best. No arguments to be had. And I quite like the fact that this is a point where the Indian forces are able to just kind of stick it to the British so yeah knock yourself out.
2: Okay so this is a war within a war that nobody really should have wanted and it was done by complete accident and it's all about poor timing and wounded pride. Lake is like is embarrassed and kind of personally offended that the Rajah of Bharatpur has betrayed him like this. And so he takes his army down after uh, many shenanigans chasing Holkar around. And I should say that Holkar is still at large. He's just lost a lot of men and he's running out of money. Uh, and that naturally he, when he hears Barakpur has has thrown in with him, he gallops as fast as he can over there. But Lake is already on the, ro- on the road and he takes the fortress of Deeg on the frontier of, of the Jat kingdom and it's a tough it's a tough siege but but it's not something the British haven't encountered before, as usual at this point, the British don't actually siege siege a city; they come up in front of it, they look at it for a while, they dig a trench or two. After about, uh, they, Yeah, they hang out as, soon as, as long as it takes them to batter a hole in the wall and then immediately attack it. I mean, sometimes in India, the British didn't even batter a hole in the wall. Sometimes they just attacked it. Sometimes they just got some ladders, knocked some ladders together and went over the wall. They had so little respect for the ability of Indian troops to hold a fortress. They were very flippant about fortresses. And to be honest, they had a point because they generally tended to take whatever they attacked which several marathas had commented with some chagrin, nevertheless, bharatpur was a was a beast of its own when they came in front of it towards uh the end of uh i think it when would it be it would be i think eighteen o five yeah we're in eighteen o five now <laughs> everybody um when they came in front of it, everybody was struck by its size and not just the city's size, the size of its walls. It became immediately obvious to engineers and artillery officers that it was going to be very difficult to actually besiege the place because of its circumference. And that was a bit, that was going to be a bit tricky, but I guess the British at this point were still of the opinion that we don't actually need to cut it off from all help. All we need to do is sit in front of one part of the wall that we want to blow up, fire our cannons at it, and then attack the breach and take it. To to be fair, the Jats agreed with them. The Jats were well aware that uh, the British had rarely ever failed to take a city that they attacked. And when this breach occurred in their massive walls, which were made of mud, uh, mud brick, they basically prepared, prepared themselves to die. They opened the gates on the other side of the city and basically let as many refugees as they wanted out because the British would inevitably sack the place. And their, their soldiers on the battlements clothed themselves in saffron, which uh, traces to an old Rajput tradition uh, to basically fight and die. But despite there being a practicable breach, despite the fact that Lake threw some very decent battalions at this breach, the Jats kicked them off it. They had actually managed to fortify it during the night. They stockaded it and the British couldn't break through partly because of the stockade and partly because the moat was much bigger and deeper than they thought it was and so there's this sort of stunned event where the british get kicked off this breach on their first try and so they th- they pick themselves up though and they go well that was disappointing it was a bit that was a bit surprising wasn't it chaps we should you know maybe we should uh, try it. We'll, we'll try again we'll get it the next time by this time holkar is now here and he's brought with him the the equally awesome um, F- Patan Freebooter uh, Amir Khan who uh, is going to be the supporting character in Holkar's movie um, and he is now doing what Holkar does he's he's harassing supply trains and he's making life really difficult for Lake uh, in trying to keep his army in front of Barakford but he stays out there long enough to get a second breach in the battlements, in, in the walls, and he attacks again. Surely this time they will, they will take it. But they don't. The Jets beat them off again. And people are starting to get worried now because this has just not happened before. Maybe, okay, so sure, maybe the, maybe the British have failed to take something on the first try sometimes, but surely not a second time. And so they try a third time. And on the third time, where they've actually dug trenches way up close to the walls, they've, they've really hammered this breach day and night to make sure the Jats can't fortify it. A, a tremendous thing happens, which I think is really important in the history of the Indian army itself. And that is that the Europeans... The, who, have been, who have been ordered to, t- to attack the breach, the king's regiments, refused to leave the trenches. Basically, they've had enough. They feel that they're going to be slaughtered in the breaches by the Jats, who are also, by the way, killing wounded in the breach, who have been left in the breach. Um, and the king's infantry, some of Lake's favourite troops, Refuse to leave the trenches when ordered to attack the breach, and so what happens is the officer in command of the storming party actually turns to the regiment behind the king's soldiers, who uh, I believe is the 12th Bengal Native Infantry and their supporting sepoy regiments, and he gets them to go, and they go without a word, and they attack it in fine style. They plant their colours even on the parapet of the of the Bastion, uh, and nevertheless taking massive casualties. Uh, but the fact that they did this shows, showed a lot of British officers, the, the caliber of the, of the Indian army, which is at this point really is becoming an Indian army and it's being referred to as an Indian army. And there's a pride in it as well, as opposed as a, sort of like a rivalry between the Indian army and the British King's army troops. And, but despite this, this this monumental moment, the British are again repulsed, and they are repulsed a fourth time when they tried the next day. And the end of it is that they cannot take Barrettpur. Sure, the Jats can't win a war against the company, but. The British cannot take Barrett for it at this Point at this point. The army is starving. It's diseased. It's lost thousands of men, and Holkar is still messing about as well. So Lake basically does, gets the best deal he can, which gives, which allows the state of uh, the Jat state to continue existing, and they basically buy him off as if he was, <laughs> as if he was like just sort of some some freebooting pillager. And he goes and chases Holkar off into Punjab, where eventually Holkar surrenders. But this entire siege of Bharatpur is just extraordinary for how little it's known and how dramatic it is and its consequences.
1: Yeah, but on the basis that history is written by the victors and in the longer term, the British are the victors in India. It's one of Mm -hmm. those, as I sarcastically kind of alluded to earlier, it's one of those ones that tradition has liked to push to the edge isn't it what's the longer term impact of this campaign on the subcontinent
2: the the longer term in- impact of the second maratha war m- makes the british the paramount power in the in what we would call the in what we would call south asia in india uh, with the removal of the marathas as a political force capable of defeating or at least challenging the east india company you have no one left the only people that are left who can actually offer resistance to the company are now people who are beyond the the border of the, the of the punjab uh, such as the Sikhs, who are a rising kingdom, but who will not achieve the the strength required to challenge the, the East India Company until the 1840s. Uh, uh, obviously, Qing, the Qing Empire in China across the Himalayas, uh, the Gurkha state in Nepal, and the uh, obviously the the troublesome Afghans, all of whom will have a part to play in in the, hist- in the history of the East India Company going forwards but at this point the Marathas are the last power in central India for certain who could have who could have um, retarded the progress of the East India Company and with their fall you get the completion essentially of the subsidiary system the forward policy as it's called, of, of uh, Governor-General Wellesley. And now a, a subject of the British Empire can theoretically walk to any of the three presidencies without leaving some form of British jurisdiction. Uh, so it's a very important moment in, in British imperial history and, of course, Indian history as well. And a great deal of what happens next is because of this of this series of wars and conquests of, of of Richard Wellesley. It's essentially I think it's fair to say it is the building point of what you would properly call the British Empire in India. Josh,
1: as always, I mean, mean, you turn up and you just deliver a masterclass. It's deeply embarrassing for the rest of us who try to emulate this kind of ability to just pour out a wealth of knowledge and inevitably fail. Thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, if you haven't gone out and bought it already, Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira is available from hellion.co.uk. Or if you fancy supporting History Hack at the same time, it'll be in our bookshop. Um, uk.bookstore.org forward slash historyhack there'll be a link in the description Uh, go and buy it please Um, not least because historians don't make a huge amount of money and so when you do take the time to read um, their work it means a huge amount to them so Josh thanks very much and make sure you come back at some point to do more historying with us
2: I will be delighted whenever you want to have me back
1: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books, you can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.